gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Hoop Dreams, the basketball podcast on the 8-Bit Collective, powered by our pals at Audio-Technica. We are back once again to talk the last dance. We're past the halfway mark, episodes 5 and 6, and we cannot stop. My name is Matt Tilby, and I'm joined once again by my hoop and hombre, John Opec. John, how you doing? Let's get this going, man. I got a tea time after this. Got to, got to hit off the golf course, you know. No time to waste, <laughs> just like MJ. Yeah. Well, yeah, clearly it's... Uh, at least you're not uh, like Dennis Rodman who just straight up admitted he wanted to go to Hooters rather yeah. than the swimming pool. So, um, yeah, episodes five and six this week were an interesting mix. Episode five is a little bit more lighthearted, but episode six was some real serious shit. Uh, yeah. What did you think of it? Really good, like... <laughs> I think I said that last week, but they just all kind of blend into one and it's really hard to separate them. But I think this one might have given us some of the most fascinating behind the scenes footage that we've seen so far, as far as the 98, like the 97, 98 season, seeing like the all-star game, seeing Jordan gambling with bodyguards, the whole golf tea time section that I just alluded to. That was quite funny. But then also all the crap that MJ had to go through with the gambling stuff as well and seeing, you know, what it's like, like getting a glimpse, I guess, of what it's like to be him and that not necessarily being such a fantastic thing all the time. Like that, I found that really um, quite insightful as to, you know, why we're about to see um, him walk away from the game for a couple of seasons in, in the next yeah. probably episodes but yeah the dream team stuff it's 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 kind of been covered in other uh productions before there was a great nba tv documentary that came out in 2012 about the dream team but anything to do with that famous scrimmage is fantastic so to get some fresh interview content about that was great yeah, exactly. But uh, of course, we do start at the '98 All Star Game with a, a a nice touching tribute to uh, the late Kobe Bryant. Mm. I felt this was a really good way to pay homage to him without sort of beating us over the head with it. They sort of yeah. weaved it quite nicely into the story um, of Jordan as well, where it's not so much you know it's all about Kobe, but it's like it's sort of from his eyes as well. Mm. Um, they they sort of they sort of they, they describe him obviously as that little Laker boy, um, <laughs> and and that was a, a kind of interesting way to look at how there's such a, a hierarchy in terms of NBA players at that time. Like you're only in the league for one season, and you're a really good player, good enough to get selected for the All Star game. But clearly, he's got some way to go before he's um, you know up in the upper echelons of uh, the NBA. Yeah, apart from the message at the start of the episode saying that it was in tribute to him, I don't think they would have re-edited anything because of his death to kind of highlight him more. I think that he and his career and his uh, association with MJ is enough for them to have done that anyway, the way that they did. So I think um, yeah, it was really interesting and he was selected for the All-Star game in his, I think it was his second or third, third season can't remember now but yeah i think it was his second season and he was still the sixth man at that point i'm pretty sure i think eddie jones was starting at shooting guard for the lakers and mm. you can kind of sense that people like not everyone was on the same page about him 
and his style to the game, his approach, his kind of um, black hole of offense style that <laughs> he became known for <laughs> over over the coming seasons. But yeah, there was some great footage of uh, them sitting around the All Star locker room with Larry and Magic there. And getting getting glimpses of like Sean Kemp with the Cavs, and you, you've got like some of the other players, like Penny Hardaway was there, being really quiet, and just the way that they talked about Kobe as as the young guy, and like Jordan giving him props, I think, but then also saying like, if that guy was on my team, I wouldn't pass him the ball after missing four <laughs> shots. <laughs> it was great. I thought it was. Um kind of touching as well the the sort of last interaction you see between the two is is mm. jordan saying i'll see you down the road um which i guess holds a little bit more weight now that you sort of know what happened to kobe and of course his his actual um interview part for the documentary i believe was filmed only a few days before his death so oh, wow. it holds a little bit more weight now as well that. yeah yeah it, it was it came out in the the days um after he sadly passed away so that was um an interesting way to look at it. But mm. um, we then sort of move on to Michael Jordan's last game at Madison Square Garden. He's still at the garden for this one um, and he wants to do something really special for this one and he breaks out a really dope colorway of the Jordan ones. What we're told is the first pair that he wore yeah. at Madison Square Garden. Um, it also came out uh, in the days leading up to this episode that this was a pair of Jordan ones that were, I think, a size too small. Um, so that's why we get this sort of um, anecdote in, in the episode that he, he takes his his um, shoe off and his sock is bleeding and he, mm. he, he, he's like, I'm having a great game. I don't want to take them <laughs> off. So um, it, it's always fun to, to be like, okay, there's a little bit of history there, but he's just like, he doesn't want to mess with a good thing. Mm. Yeah, I remember when that happened in the magazines that I used to read, giving it a fair bit of coverage. So it was a great way to bring the whole shoe culture, sneaker culture into this documentary because he's, you know, obviously so closely associated with the way that we view basketball shoes and these Mm. companies now, whether it's Air Jordan or Nike. And even like the way that they set a trend for signature shoes, for signature athletes to to have these deals that are worth more in some instances than the contracts that they sign within the NBA. Yeah, exactly. Like we, you sort of touched on it there. We, we get a bit of a, a history behind Jordan signing his first um, shoe deal with, with Nike. Um, and of course the bombshell that I don't think anyone would have seen unless we, you know, listened to the documentary, he actually wanted to sign for Adidas uh, or Adidas, as Americans yeah. <laughs> tend to say, uh, which still bugs me to this day, which is a little tick I have. But anyway, um, we get the the bizarre, the regular scheduled bizarre interview guests uh, for this episode, Nas and Justin Timberlake, both sort of talking about how uh, the Jordan 1 was like the, the pinnacle of, of sneaker culture at that point. Like, I, I want to ask you, John, like, maybe apart from the Adidas superstar, the Jordan one probably has to be like the most recognizable sneaker of all time. Would you agree? Uh, I guess the Chuck Taylors would probably be ahead of them, the, like the Converse All-Stars. Yeah, true. And they were mm-hmm. worn in the NBA for a long time. Like it's hard to imagine that being a, a 
shoe for an athlete, but uh, there it was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like no support at all. But mm. um, yeah, I think, and because they've, they're a casual shoe that everyone would wear. But yeah, I, I think it's it's definitely, as far as like basketball shoes, it's number one to me. Mm. Yeah. And it's it's funny because like you see him wearing the, the Jordan 1s in 98 and everyone else is a sort of, moved on from that sort of very it's a very simple sort of shoe like you can understand people wearing it in you know the late 80s and maybe even early 90s mm-hmm. but you know mid 2000s like you you would maybe only see like guys like PJ Tucker break them out for a half and then put them put on something a little bit more comfortable because you wear that for 48 minutes and like Jordan said your feet would be <laughs> in absolute agony but um yeah. We, we get uh, an idea of, of how his contract was formed and they talk about the, the foundation of Air Max and all that sort of stuff. But what I wanted to, to talk about was the commercials because mm. this was this was peak Jordan, really. Um, the, the big one, obviously, being Spike Lee reprising his, uh, his famous role as Mars Blackman. Yeah. Um, Mars Blackman here with my main man, Michael Jordan. Is it, is it the shoes? It's got to be the no, shoes. Mars. <laughs> no Mars. Uh, <laughs> there was there was a a commercial that um, Sydney Store Throwback uh, put out in the days after the uh, the episode aired. It was uh, it was old Jordan sort of taking on sort of uh, sort of fresh faced Jordan like as oh, a one on one. Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, like those two are, are like the m- most iconic sort of commercials for Jordan I think I've ever seen. Um, and it sort of just gives you an idea of how Jordan and the Jordan brand was sort of looking to, I guess, push things, push the envelope further, so to speak, in terms mm. of sneaker culture and, and really sort of that competitive drive. But I thought uh, Mars Blackman was just a very nice uh, comedy touch that uh, Jordan had. Wasn't there as well, there was a, unrelated to shoes, but there was a commercial that he did that I think has been memed quite a bit. It's that give of him going, stop it. Get some help. Uh, um, yeah. I don't know what that's from. If anyone, I don't can, know what it's um, from either. Yeah, it's us, like, it looks like let a us public, know what that is. It looks like a public service announcement kind of thing. Like, yeah. maybe a, like don't do drugs kind of thing. Yeah, true. That could be it. Um, but in general, we we get back to the '97 era, and we you know we see him having another massive game. He torches the Knicks for 42 points, which mm. is you know <laughs> another day at the office for MJ at that point. Um, but we moved back into 92. So we've, we've seen him claim the 91 title. And for 92, they're in the, the finals versus Portland. And, of course, the Clyde Drexler-led Blazers. This was weird because they just sort of glossed over it. Like, it was just a couple of games and they just yeah, went, boom, they really it's done. Did. <laughs> like, which was I, very weird. But I, I think it's I just guess, because the, the narrative of it isn't as exciting. Like, it really was a, a Portland team that wasn't, really flashy or didn't have like the glitz and glamour of the Lakers the year before or even the mm. Phoenix Suns the year later Clyde was really good like he was on the dream team and he was definitely like the second best shooting guard in the league but it got reduced to basically poor man's Jordan gets shown that he's not Jordan that was essentially <laughs> the, the series how, how especially how people view it now it's just the shrug and that's it yeah, exactly. And I mean, even Michael Wilbon sort of said it in the episode, like the 92, you know, balls were arguably even better than the 91 balls, which mm. is a, a scary thought. 
But um, it, that sort of leads nicely into, I guess, the main part of the episode, which is Jordan's experience on the Dream Team, which looking at that team now, like I don't think there'll ever be a, a better squad of basketball players ever assembled on a team. Like you could argue maybe even like the the 2008 or the 2012 mm. um, US teams, but yeah, it's it's tough. But yeah. we, we sort of get a, a bit more of discussion about everyone's favorite bad boy, Isaiah Thomas, and how he wasn't selected for the team. And we sort of got the explanation that a lot of people had been rubbed the wrong way by Thomas. Um, and he sort of gives his explanation. It's a bit flimsy, but what do you think of that? Do you think that this sort of toxic culture that people are claiming that he brought was was really the, the key reason for it? Or do you think there are sort of ulterior motives in this? I think it was a combination of uh, wanting Jordan to play because he was the star and he was the best player. Uh, and I think Jordan didn't want him there, despite what he said. Like, he didn't have to say, I asked him not to be on the team. Like, it was even if he didn't specifically ask for it, we know that he wouldn't have played with Isaiah, basically, from the things that he said in the past and in the documentary. But yeah, like, Pippen had problems with him, probably as much or more than Jordan did. Uh, Bird had clashed with him. Magic had clashed with him. And that's just... If you have the option of taking John Stockton, who's a perfectly good NBA point guard, and yeah. right, up, right up there, like, just do that. Like, cut out the risk, you know? It, it just makes sense. And the fact that Chuck Daly, the Pistons coach, was, you know, the one leading that dream team speaks to, I guess, how uh, much influence Jordan... <laughs> And, and that group of guys had over the roster because, you know, you'd think Chuck would have his, his guys back there, but mm. there has to be a reason. Yeah, there's obviously a reason that he's been left off. And, you know, it's like you reap what you sow. Like if you um, establish a reputation as being someone that will, uh, you know, make life hard for your opponent and not necessarily play them with a, a, a level of respect, then it's going to come back to you and that's what happened from the looks of it yeah exactly um we may not never never know what happens but um it get it gives me sort of like pat beverly sort of feelings about it but you know yeah. we don't want to judge pat bev but anyway uh with those teams formed however we do get the the fabled practice game in monte carlo now i'd heard about this for years and years like I'd heard that you know this amazing game that no one had ever you know filmed it was all just hearsay about this amazing squad of players that were playing this practice game in Monte Carlo before uh, the 92 Olympics and I've never seen players go that hard in a practice game have you no like the the documentary I mentioned earlier, the NBA TV one, was like the first time we got to see footage from that scrimmage. And I still... I'm, I'm really hopeful that one day it gets uploaded in its full, unedited, because they kind of just show mm. the highlights. But listening to them, t like, you can hear them talking to each other, and it's so entertaining yeah. to hear, like, Magic talking trash. It's pretty much just Magic and Michael the whole time. 
Um, but yeah. it's, it's fantastic. And some of the passes that are happening and you get like, I don't know if it was in the clip I sent you from that Dream Team doc or in the one in the last dance, but Magic's recounting play by play what was happening. And he's like doing the motions to say like, then I hit him with one of these. And he's like doing these no look passes. And his recollection of it was like spot on for the way that it went down. And to kind of get the, I guess, the narrative of the practice and what was happening on the court and what it like represented is so uh, fascinating, I think. It's like this struggle between the old and the new and MJ claiming that it's his league now. You know, it's the 90s now. And Magic kind of not being willing to relinquish that title until he'd been put away. And it wasn't in this doc, but in the Dream Team one where they kind of pan over to Larry Bird. He was like sitting courtside, like staying out of it, basically. He's like, it's not it's not our league anymore, Magic. It's it's his. So Grabbing the popcorn, let... just like, yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> Probably resting his back at that point because he was well <laughs> past uh, his physical prime. But yeah, so great to see that footage. Yeah, I I really liked the uh, the claims. I think it was from Magic that uh, oh they just moved Chicago yeah. Stadium to Monte Carlo for yeah. all of the uh, the shitty calls, and I was like, he was talking so much man. trash. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I, I really liked when they were they sort of talked about how they bonded and, and were at the hotel mm. and. Um, I li- I really loved that quote as Michael was walking by with his bags. Uh, Michael, game on the line. Who would take the last <laughs> shot? Me. Obviously me. And he yeah. just walks around like, what, who, what are you here. talking about? Like, get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this sort of moves us nicely on to, uh, I guess, this episode's feature on a Bulls player, which is Tony Kukoc, who mm-hmm. you could argue is probably one of the more underrated or sort of undervalued players um, in that Bulls lineup. Obviously, we talked about Pippen being massively undervalued with his contract. But Kukoc, I think, flies under the radar uh, purely because there wasn't a, a, a long, you know, standing history of European players in the league at that point. Like mm. you might have had, I think Drazen Petrovic um, sort of sticks to mind. But this was a really interesting look at it because obviously in the late eighties, early nineties, you've got a lot of unrest in uh, in Eastern Europe, and he talks about how Yugoslavia was sort of under a lot of you know unrest from. A lot of countries trying to, I guess, claim their independence. It's probably the best way to yeah. put it. Um, and it even talks about how Jerry Krause went all the way to Yugoslavia to to go and watch him. That must have... I mean, we talk about how much of a, a piece of shit Jerry Krause is, but <laughs> full credit to him. Like, that's, that's ballsy to go all the way to Yugoslavia to watch a player. Mm. Yeah, I think... It was his fas- yeah. Obviously, it was his fascination with Tony that led the Pippen and and Jordan to kind of have it in for him so bad. But we'll get to that. I think Jerry Krause was almost ahead of his time in that sense. It, it could have been that he was looking for the next Stras and Petrovic or or something along those lines. Um, Avina Sabonis was another European player that had come across and been yeah. fantastic in the NBA. Mm. And yeah, the the situation over there. Uh, politically was just, I guess, going to shape these players into being pretty tough, you know, mentally for for a, a um, 
a stereotype later that became that the European players are soft, but I don't know how you could be when you grow up in those kind of circumstances. And mm. while, while we're plugging like documentaries, there's a fantastic 30 for 30 called Once We're Brothers about Petrovic and Vladi Divas and um, kind of their friendship and, and being kind of torn apart by the, the civil unrest that's happening in that part of the world before they both came over to uh, the NBA around the same time. So, yeah, really complicated situation. Really kind of puts the um, game of basketball in a weird kind of perspective when you look at all this heavy stuff happening. Like, how tr- trivial is it to to play this to play this game? I guess. But um, yeah, it was fascinating to see. Is again, like Tony Kukoc deciding not to come to the NBA as soon as he could because he he kind of felt guilty leaving everyone behind mm. as well as uh i believe he was earning a lot more in for That's his right, european yeah. team um than he was than he could have made in his first couple seasons in the nba but obviously he has his baptism of fire in the first game in the group game yeah. against the u.s um gets absolutely torched and i i do feel sorry for him because that looked like uh a pretty pretty nasty sort of uh, hazing ritual almost, but um, it's just so mean, isn't it? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's very mean, absolutely. <laughs> and the interview with him, he was kind of still like, I don't know why they did it to me. I, I like he, he looked hurt still. Like he played with these guys for five or six years, uh, uh, with Pippen at least for five or six years. So it's like, yeah, pretty pretty yeah. rough. That's the like he's probably thinking, oh, I get to meet Scotty and Michael. We're going to be teammates. We'll probably. <laughs> go for a drink after the game and instead they just straight up embarrass him. Yeah, I'm glad that they buried the hatchet because uh, that could that could have uh, caused a couple issues when he was with the Bulls, but mm. obviously he rebounds um, and, and does a really sort of admirable job in a losing effort in the gold medal game. Um, this dream team, I wanted to ask as well, they sort of talk about how it was responsible for the rise of not only the NBA, but US basketball in a, on a world scale. Do mm. you agree with that? Do you think that this was the catalyst for, I guess, people's uh, love affair for the game of basketball, not only in the US, but more around the world? I think so. And not having been around in 92 to see it firsthand, we've seen you know, the effect that the Olympic Games can have when there's a popular narrative or a popular team that just captures everyone's attention and the whole world is watching. And from, from at least just from watching the documentaries and hearing people talk about it who were there at the time, everyone was just compelled by this team and watching them win games by 20 or 30 points and watching this amazing collection of players together, it would be so... Uh, amazing on on your tv to to see like this is how the game of basketball is played like this is what you can achieve at that level and um i think by you know bringing nba athletes into the olympic games for the first time that's what they were probably hoping and we've seen since 92 the amount of foreign players in the league has gone up to so i don't know if that's specifically tied to it but Definitely, like as far as the media coverage goes, there was a, an amazing curiosity and fascination with with this team. Mm, exactly, and I mean, it probably influenced you know deals for like Jordan going to Paris Saint Germain and signing you know 
deals with soccer teams in, in Europe and things like that. Like you definitely wouldn't have had that um, if mm. Jordan hadn't been successful or if, you know, Larry Bird and Magic hadn't been as successful with this dream team. So I think it sort of created new avenues for um, not just the league, but the sport in general in, in Europe and the world. So like fair play to this dream team for sure. Yeah. Um, and well, before we before we move on completely from the Olympics, yeah. I think on the subject of Tony Kukoc, I want to say like it's possible he was overshadowed in his role with the Bulls because he wasn't a starter. Like Dennis Rodman was the power forward that got uh, you know those starters minutes, but Kukoc was often one that was taking like a last you know last second shot clock um, jump shot. He was coming in there at crunch time if they needed to score. Um, when Jordan went and played baseball for a couple of years, Kukoc came in and was kind of the second scoring option next to Pippen and was often called upon, or at least famously called upon, to, to take the last shot in crunch time when it counted and, and made it in the playoffs. So he's a guy that I think, as much as he didn't live up to the potential that I think Jerry Krause originally hoped, he was definitely a prototype for the Dirk Nowitzki, for the Luka Doncic, probably closer model of that type of player that came later. I think if Kukoc was playing now, he would be a, like a very similar player to Luka. There's amazing um, highlights of how skilled Tony was with the ball. He was, a, I think he was 6'11", and he was handling the ball like a point guard. And point forward wasn't really, I guess, a super common position like Scotty Pippen led the team in assists so he was kind of playing that point forward role but mm. for a guy like Kukoc I think if he was in the league now we'd be like he'd, he'd be super popular now I reckon nice he'd probably have a better shot than Ben Simmons too yeah um, <laughs> 100%. we we move slightly back to I believe 1990 and we they talk a little bit about politics and it's probably not our place to talk about that too much but um, I did like this quote once again from our friend uh, Barack Obama, who said, any African-American in this society that sees significant success has an added burden. And they, they make sure to put President Barack Obama yeah, on it this time <laughs> Chicago, to sort right. of to to ram the point home, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, near the end, we, we sort of get to the idea of how difficult it is to get tickets for any Chicago game anywhere because people seem to have clicked onto the fact that Jordan may be leaving. Celebs were scrapping a, a nice appearance from Sinbad. I don't think I've yes. heard the name Sinbad in about <laughs> 10 years. Um, and we get to see Jerry Seinfeld with a, a very nice, um, I guess, I guess comparison between the Bulls and Seinfeld being, um, you know, going out on top, being the, the yeah. show of the 90s, the team of the 90s, which I thought was a, a nice um, comparison there. And he gets... He gets put in. He gets to go into the dressing room, and he looks like a deer in headlights. I've never seen a man that was amazing. like absolutely look like he's about to shit himself. Um, it was that was awkward, great. wasn't it? And it was like delightfully yeah. awkward. Like he, <laughs> like I don't think he's a huge basketball fan. I don't. It looked like Jordan wasn't really a big Seinfeld fan, but they, they obviously run in similar circles because they're both super um super duper famous and like they're in the super duper famous club uh mm. and it, it like when, when he says um hey phil the look on his face <laughs> he was just like 
was, I don't know if he was intimidated by Phil Jackson or like they. It was almost like they had this history, like some kind of run in, and he was politely yeah. saying hello, <laughs> but didn't want to actually talk to him. But yeah, oh, I love man. I love that sequence. It's one of my favorite things on the whole documentary so far because it's like peak nineties, just Jerry and Jordan hanging out. Imagine that Seinfeld episode if it ever got made. That would have been incredible. I would have loved it. Yeah. There was the um, episode where they were like going to see Jordan play the Knicks at Madison Square Garden where they get in the limo. It's and like oh, yeah, that whole forgot. misunderstanding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, shit. That <laughs> that's, was great. That's the time that Jordan gets name dropped on uh, on Seinfeld. Uh, we now move on to episode six and we we get the sort of interesting uh i guess view of jordan's day where he's he's stuck in the hotel room he then goes out of the hotel room in the foyer he gets mobbed moves out into the outside of the building and he gets mobbed um and then he gets back into the hotel and we sort of get the first admission that he's ready to give the game up and now i start to realize why some of this footage never saw the light of day for 22 years because if it got out that he was like oh i'm ready to give this shit up like whoever was filming this or whoever leaked it would absolutely get their ass fired this shit is incredible (laughs) um they secure 60 wins for that season which is given how like rough and tumble the start of their season was is pretty big but we sort of get the idea that dirt was being dug up the the book jordan rules by sam smith who's appeared in a couple of episodes before um he spent a season with the bulls and was sort of saying this stuff that no one had believed was was you know people were privy to yet and then it was sort of like who's the informer who's the rat in this sort of situation and (laughs) People sort of believed it was Horace Grant, another appearance from the big, bulky, baby uh, Horace <laughs> Grant. Um, they sort of felt that Horace was a bit of an informer um, and they felt slighted by it. Do you think that this sort of had the potential to, I guess, tear the group apart? Or what do you, th- what do you mm. think of this? Uh, I don't think so, because the book came out, if I'm not mistaken, in 92... So they played together for another couple of years. And Horace was, I believe, still there for a season without Jordan, I think. But it was more like contract issues um, that led to Horace leaving rather than anything in the locker room. So, I mean, they, they know and they knew that Sam Smith and Horace Grant were close. The consensus seems to be even just from Jordan saying without any like hesitation, Horace Grant said all that stuff. Um, but I, I, I'm sure, I don't know, like Horace denied it straight up. So it's, it's interesting to see, to see that kind of budding of opinions there. But mm. I think a lot of it also is believed to have come directly from Phil Jackson. Um, so whoever said it, and you know, a lot of it is just Sam Smith literally overhearing things happening. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know that it had that kind of effect. It it may have led to extra speculation for the media questions that they probably weren't used to getting. And it was the first glimpse that Jordan wasn't this sparkly clean guy that all the commercials and everything made him out to be. And it was kind of the 
edition of the guy that wrote that book michael and me a, a gambling addiction or whatever <laughs> which seems like the biggest cash grab of all time to, to like, do that the the front of that book looks m- less like a book cover more like the front cover of like an okay weekly or like a mm-hmm. a woman's weekly where it's like shocking yeah interview might cry for help and it's like come yeah. on you can write a better <laughs> title than that like seriously yeah i think that would wouldn't have um been taken too seriously but then on top of that like you had the guy that was a notorious hustler apparently appearing in court with the check made out to to him from yes. michael for like slim Buller is his uh, name yeah, slim yeah. a lot of money um and and michael having to say like yeah it was a gambling debt so I, th- I think those things kind of compounded with the book were probably starting to grate on him as far as the types of uh, scrutiny he was under. And it it really, after the Atlantic City thing during the, the finals, I think was just came in, coming to a head. Like it was, um, it, it painted that picture that Michael was just tired. He was just sick mm. of living this kind of, high scrutiny life where you know you're the hero until you know you either die a hero or you live long enough to become a villain like it's the perfect example of how we want to tear people down naturally people are just waiting to 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 expose people's imperfections and that's why we see like you know reality tv the way it is today and the way that's that every athlete apart from LeBron James basically has had like this massive scandal that, oh, sorry, every like top tier athlete has had this massive scandal that's, um, you know, caused them to, to waver here or there. And it's just, it just makes you think like, yeah, like maybe I don't want to have that. Maybe I wouldn't trade lives with Michael Jordan. Maybe it isn't despite all the success and fame. Maybe it isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Mm. I'm sure we'll probably get a bit of an idea of, his move into baseball probably in the next episode as well Mm -hmm. as a result of all of this. But in the meantime, with all of this sort of hoo-ha happening at the same time, we get an idea of the new force in the East or the upcoming force in in the East being the New York Knicks. Um, And once again, in the early 90s, you see another team being so fierce, like unbelievably fierce like Patrick Ewing at that time I feel scared just looking at him like he (laughs) looks like an intimidating man um but this team you know Ewing Starks Houston I believe Charles Oakley was there at the time as well like Anthony Mason yeah yeah, like a, a big bustling team like these guys were going to push Jordan and the Bulls all the way and they did like obviously the Knicks were up 2 nil. Um, and then Jordan and the Bulls went on to win the next four. But you see these teams sort of giving a real hustle and bustle to their, their game plan. It obviously sets the Bulls off. Do you think that they just didn't, you know, I guess, adjust well enough to teams giving them not enough space? Like they were obviously clinging to them very tight. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, they were probably... The, the Knicks were probably not as dirty as the Pistons, but they were every bit as physical. And mm. they definitely went down that same path, you know, shut down Michael, shut down the Bulls. And it didn't work because 
at this point, they've been through the Pistons. They know what it takes to get around it. And I think, I just, I just love that you see throughout this documentary and especially the, it seems like especially these two episodes when Michael was pushed or when he was, you know, when the ships were down, so to speak, he would just come out in the middle of the finals or the playoffs with like a 50 point game. And it's just like, <laughs> that just doesn't really seem to happen these days in the, in the finals. Yeah. Like, I, like off the top of my head and I'm, sure i'm forgetting something but i just don't recall multiple times that steph lebron Kawhi, you know durant just dropping 50 in the finals to put a stamp on it and say we're not losing this game like there's been some yeah. amazing performances but there's i just can't think of it in the last like five or ten years anyone that's just like i'm winning the finals mvp because of this game basically yeah and like no one can stop me yeah <laughs> yeah it's just it's like yeah we've had some amazing performances you know lebron playing for the heat especially stands out in the in the past decade but yeah just refusal to lose by just destroying the opponent and them being basically disillusioned like we, we we're getting i'm getting a bit ahead of ourselves but just hearing charles barkley talk about like and he said it before like realizing i'm not the best player in the world because that guy just did that mm, exactly and i think that probably gives more credence to the sort of uh mj lebron argument but who am I to judge? We'll probably discuss that at the end of the series. Yeah, but... we can save that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because that could be a number of episodes on its own. But, of course, this gambling issue sort of ruins his reputation. Well, not He basically has to defend himself. And the reporters were, were right in saying that's got to be tiring on him because he's got to go to you know face the media and explain mm. himself all, that, um, all those times. But he sort of said it best, like he responds on the court and he yeah. did it so effortlessly, 54 points in game four. Like you said, like this just doesn't happen that often for a lot of players in the NBA today. They may, you know, break a record, but they probably won't, you know, go off for the, a huge amount of points like that. And I think like it's it still stands today that the two highest playoff point totals are still MJ, aren't they? Uh, playoff... I, th- I think so. Like, I can't remember. I don't know, like that 63 against the Celtics is probably up there. I don't know off the top of my head, but it wouldn't surprise mm. me at all. Yeah, exactly. Um, they obviously end up winning that series 4-2, um, and Phil decides to give them a bit of a, da- a day off at the uh, <laughs> the driving range or the golf course. Jordan obviously takes that, um, and he-, he makes a nice quip that, you know, a young coach should be getting them back in the gym um, on a day like that. So he he respects that quite a bit. Um, and Phil Jackson goes, you guys going to the swimming pool? And obviously Dennis Rodman goes, nah, I'm going to Hooters. I want some tits and ass. <laughs> Which is so classic Rodman. But yeah. uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it there. We obviously don't want to you know say anything out of line. But it, it then obviously brings us on to the 93 finals against my pride and joy <laughs> the phoenix suns and this i mean obviously with the suns you could you could obviously say like the the steve nash amari stoudemire uh mike d'antoni sort of seven seconds or less team mm-hmm. would have been the most recognizable suns team but purely because they aren't in a big market you could like this team charles barkley dan marley 
Kevin Johnson, Danny Ainge, like yeah. This this team was was very good for for its its time like and I just think that because we're not in a Los Angeles or a Chicago or a you know a New York people weren't you know giving them the sort of respect that they deserved. Do you think that if they were you know in a in a bigger market they would have you know been regarded as one of those better teams? Yeah, I probably put them along Portland in that regard to um where yeah as you said not the the big market that the others are but i think they definitely get a lot of kudos if barkley didn't leave and go to houston i think that would be even like the reputation may may have been even stronger for that side but Hmm. i mean i think that a lot of people were turned on to the suns in the 90s because of barkley and their success there and like even like you you know, we talk about Space Jam sometimes. <laughs> he was still on the Suns when that happened. And that was, you know, th- that's a, a good example of, of him being one of the, the top personalities in the NBA. Those guys being one of the exciting teams to watch. And Kevin Johnson, fantastic point guard, super underrated point guard. I don't think he had a great series against the Bulls. I think Danny Ainge was probably getting a bit long in the tooth because we, we already know that, you know, he was in that... 85 playoff game playing golf with Jordan before yeah. that before that matchup but yeah Dan Marley they I think they did a good job of kind of showing that he was seen as this defensive stopper that could shut down Michael and that of course drove him to show that uh, that's impossible but yeah Chuck was amazing that year he won the MVP and obviously that bothered Michael too and that's all he needs to kind of form some kind of narrative in his mind. Yeah, exactly. I, I've just written down in my notes um, in regards to this series, I've just written, I don't like this. Um, <laughs> basically, the Suns put up a fight, and to my credit, uh, they did pretty much as, as well as they could. Um, but, of course, they end up losing 4-2 in a, in a series that um, goes the distance, well, kind of goes the distance, you could have said, but... There's that obviously the famous anecdote that Jordan said to his teammates, "I'm only packing one suit because yeah. we only need one suit," <laughs> that was which awesome. I thought was 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 pretty pretty baller to be honest. But um, but then near the end of that that um, that episode, we we get a bit more of Jordan's view on public pressure um, and how being like you sort of said, being the best player in the world or the the best player on your team. Um, sort of brings about that sort of public perception that you've got to be squeaky clean and 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 do everything and and you know have all these endorsements and whatnot but do you think at that point like if he wasn't in the public eye as much he would have you know stayed with the bulls or if he didn't have that sort of public pressure on him he would have just continued playing do you think that sort of forced his move to baseball or, or do you yeah. think things could have gone it's a different? good question because i think that it was a combination of things and they'll probably get to it in the next episodes but you had the fact that you know he was under all this pressure he was getting scrutinized over the gambling you had the fact that he just couldn't have any privacy he, he seemed like a prisoner in that hotel room like that was his sanctuary and once yeah. he leaves as soon as he steps outside there's people yelling and screaming and that can't be fun. Like, it, it would get old really quick, I think. The third thing is that he had won three 
championships in a row, which is something that uh, Larry didn't do. It's something Isaiah didn't do. It's something that I don't think Magic had done without Kareem, if he had done it. I, I don't recall specifically. Mm. Um, but that, and then of course, his father was tragically murdered. Spoilers for probably the next episode. Yeah, I'd say that's and, probably a, a big part of it. Yeah, yeah and, and that was, that like, obviously is going to take this emotional toll on you, on anyone, and to kind of face these same pressures that he'd been looking at day after day again for another season, you know, the pressure of winning a fourth consecutive championship, you know, people that win back-to-back titles in the NBA talk about how they're a target every single game, how it gets harder and harder and harder, and we're seeing that in this footage of the 98 season, we're seeing that in the pressure and scrutiny in the 93 season and i think that's probably the best argument that the bulls wouldn't have been able to maintain this standard for the eight consecutive seasons if michael never retired but at the same time you can see that life change happening with his father dying and him saying i can't do this again um the combination of that and his father always wanting him to play baseball like always believing that michael would be able to make it as a baseball player them both mm. having that baseball as a first love and that kind of shared experience as a father and son i think that all these things combined for him to just say i'm going to take a break and i'm going to step away from from the nba and i found it really interesting like he had, he did that interview with ahmad rashad talking about gambling for some reason he was wearing his sunglasses yeah and, <laughs> they talked about that <laughs> and ahmad was like like michael mentioned when he retires or when he steps away from the game. And I think Ahmad said, like, could that be soon? And Michael was like, could be. Maybe, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. And it was like, wow, like he really wasn't hiding the fact that he was considering it. Um, I guess it wasn't as shocking to people that were close to him as it was to the rest of the world. Mm. And even that sort of short period where Ahmad Rashad's in the car with Jordan, as I believe they're driving to uh, the stadium, Mm. he's sort of like, surely you're going to give it up. Like, you know, I can't deal with this sort of stuff. You know, I, I've been listening to you all day with sort of stuff. Like, it's clear he's just sort of sick of people, like, snooping around looking for any sort of, like, any sort of um, info or news on it. So he's clearly just like, mm-hmm. that's it. Like, I'm out. Like, and it's weird because you would have expected if he wanted a break from it all, he would have just gone, okay, I'm out of sport entirely. I'm going into hiding for, you know, a year or so. I've got plenty of money. Like, there's no point in me <laughs> playing, you know, any other sport or anything. But instead, he goes to baseball, which you could argue probably would have given him more coverage anyway from, you know, arguably the greatest basketball player on the planet going to play a different sport. Like, that would have created a, a sort of mix of, you know, fans as well. Would have created more fans, yeah. new fans for both baseball and basketball. So... The idea yeah, of him moving moving to baseball is probably a little bit uh, short-sighted and a little bit sort of odd because it, it does the exact opposite of wanting to have a break because it just continues on the in the same vein, don't you think? Yeah, there was definitely a lot of like hype and scrutiny around him when he played baseball, but 
that's something he's going to have to live with for the rest of his life, regardless of what he does, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the fact that he's so competitive, and we saw that with him gambling with Joe Dirt, the security guard. Um, oh, yeah. I, I, I think um, I think that competitiveness means he couldn't just retire and do nothing. Even like years later, he retired. He bought, uh, you know, or he, he became like a, a general manager of the Wizards, and then he decided to lace up and come back and play for the Wizards. We we don't talk about that ill-fated period, John. <laughs> we don't. I, that, I, I that, that's that wiped from covered. my memory. <laughs> <laughs> that won't be in the last dance. But the fact that that like he did that at that age shows that he's not someone that can just walk away and let that be that. I think, and mm. yeah, it, it, it's it's going to be interesting how they cover the rest of it. Mm. And uh, yeah, shout out to uh, Joe Dirt, the security guard there. One he of was the awesome. The shrug. <laughs> weirder sort of segments. Um, what was that game that they were playing? Like, is it get the coin I, closest to the wall? I, I think. I, yeah, I thought it was sort of more like a uh, like a disc golf sort of thing, or it's like who was the closest to it, or like without uh, touching like, it. Yeah. Yeah, sort of like lawn bowls, but yeah, I yeah. mean, I've never I've never seen anything like that, but um, yeah, like that man's uh, curl mullet. Yeah. Call it? Could you call it? Like, you he sort was, of said it best. Like, you sort of said it best. He's looking like um, Mr. Perfect. WWF superstar Mr. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Kurt Hennig. <laughs> um, if you don't know who that is, ladies and gentlemen, look him up. He's a wonderful hairstyle uh, yeah. from the late 80s, early 90s. But yeah, that was a very bizarre. What did you uh, think of the gambling of stuff? Like, not having, you know, maybe you didn't know to the extent to which the gambling was a, a big thing for him. I knew it was a, a, a an issue for him. Um, I knew that it it sort of took a toll on him a little bit. That that combined with his father's death, um, which I'm sure they'll get onto in the next couple of episodes. But he sort of said it best, like you know, if if I actually had a gambling problem, I'd have you know sold my car, sold my house. Like mm. my my wife and my children would have gone hungry, <laughs> and I would have. I would have been living in a cardboard box. I could be hawking my watches and whatnot. Um, so it's pretty much saying I'm addicted, but because I'm rich, it doesn't matter. Because like that's well, all yeah, the, true. That's, that's all the stuff that a gambler would say is that I don't have a problem. Like <laughs> I, I have a problem. I, I can fine. stop any time. Like he he said that as well. It was like with all the hindsight we have of the platitudes and cliches that gamblers say, knowing all those things now just seems like a, a textbook case of, of addiction. <laughs> well, it's like, it's like the episode of The Simpsons. Where it's like, remember when you, you scored like 54 points against the Knicks to get through to the NBA Finals? Well, you have a gambling problem. Like, <laughs> it's it, it just weighed on him quite a bit, it seems. Mm. Um, and yeah. whether or not he still does it now, like he's like he said, he's oh, got yeah, more he than enough money to, to do it now. Whether he did it, you know, in, in more sort of respectful means on the golf course mm. or in sort of a little bit more you know risky means in blackjack and other card games like yeah. he, he could still do it like he had the money to do it but he sort of pawned it off as you know it's i don't have a gambling problem i have a com- competitive problem um, yeah and we got a glimpse of that on the plane where he just wanted to play those one dollar buy-in games with yeah um, paxton and, and bj armstrong or whatever and I really do think it was overblown, the whole Atlantic City thing, because th- there was this focus on the fact that he was out so late. And that, that mm. was the issue. It wasn't that like he was gambling, because 
like that became the issue but they were saying like oh look the gambling addiction you have is causing you to go out late and that's the problem but you look at these athletes who the like the busiest part of their day is from i guess it's like 7 30 till 9 30 p.m and then you know the game's finished you're showering you're doing all this stuff you're winding down by the time you get home it's probably what like 11 30 like 11 o'clock uh, that, no, I'd, I'd say, like that's even, like the, the the that's like us getting home at five p.m. and deciding I don't want to go to bed. I want to like do stuff. And he decides <laughs> I'm going to go to Atlantic City. I don't think that it's a big deal. And I, I've heard like Jalen Rose talk about it. Like these guys are often seen out super late, and that's just the hours that they keep. They sleep in and they they work out in the afternoon. Their games are in the afternoon. They, they can't be getting up at six a.m. And then having a game 12 hours later and be well-rested for it. Yeah, true. And I think that that's just, you know, the evolution of athletes from the 90s into now. Like, the the athletes, you, you hear about it all the time. Like, athletes in the 70s were, you know, smoking cigars. I mean, even Jordan said it. Yeah, he, he said it. Thing, like, like coach would hand you a with, cigarette at halftime. Yeah, halftime. <laughs> and they were drinking it all, you know, during the game. And, you know, I guess... Jordan was probably the the prototype for the model athlete being, you know, you, you can't... Well, I mean, now Take he care does because he smokes cigars. Work out. Yeah, he's smoking Yeah, exactly. Like, Constantly smoking you, cigars. Yeah, well, you can't see it, ladies and gentlemen, but we're both wearing uh, Jordan T-shirts um, where at this, <laughs> after the NBA Finals, he's smoking a, a huge cigar, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, like he's pro- he's probably the, the the first person who sort of brought it into the main um, spectrum, I guess, of, of being sort of careful with your body and and being sort of fit and healthy. So yeah, it, it it's weird, but I can understand like if you've got a team curfew and you're at, you know on the road, so to speak, that's probably a little bit more of a problem. Like if you're mm-hmm. at home, like I can understand if you're you know a couple you know couple minutes drive from your house. But if you're on the road and you have to, you know, implement that sort of team bonding and being together as a team, you eat as a team, you sleep as a team, you stay together as a team. So him sort of going off by himself or with his dad, I mean, but yeah, going off by himself essentially sort of not only, you know, ruins that sort of team atmosphere, it sort of gives the idea that, oh, I'm better than you. I can just do whatever I want. And that sort of ruins that, I think. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they had that anyway. Like, you're seeing in the the later seasons, like the present day ones, basically with Rodman saying, we never hung out, we never talked off the court. Dennis is obviously going out and partying whenever he wants. And <laughs> it's true. It was only a few years later. And there's like a double standard there where, oh, we'll just let Dennis do it because that's what he wants to do. But if it was Michael saying like I want to take a few days off so I can go to Vegas and gamble for three days like there'll be a huge uproar (laughs) so yeah I think it was hugely overblown and it was it was just because he was this squeaky clean image that hadn't had anything to to pick at until that point apart from the Jordan rules do you think it's kind of ironic that Jordan saying to Phil Jackson if he goes to Vegas you'll never see him again (laughs) and then he ends up well he of course goes to um to Atlantic City, so I think there's probably he was home by. Bit, he says well, he was yeah. home by midnight. I assume he was home by like three a.m. Really, but regardless, yeah. <laughs> it it, it just 
yeah, it sets a, it sets a different precedent. But yeah, um, but of course, like we could talk about this until the cows come home. But we should probably leave yep. it there. If you do have any comments, queries, questions, or complaints, you can do so with the hashtag Hoop Dreams on Twitter. You can follow me at it's Tilby and Jono. Where can they follow you? You can find me on all socials at Jono himself. And of course, if you want to follow anything that we're doing on 8-Bit, you can also follow We Are 8-Bit. But that is it for another week. And hopefully we shall be back with our head honcho, I should say, uh, Brendan White. He's uh, mm. off uh, creating a half court in Animal Crossing at the moment. <laughs> I, uh, I saw his half design and it looked pretty good, but uh, maybe we'll convince him to get off the switch and... Uh, join us for an episode this time but uh that is it for now for me matt tilby and from john Peck, it is goodbye from now stay inside stay safe and take care keep dreaming